Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. Sometimes you go to the store and you get a two-for-one special. Anybody like two-for-one specials? We have a coupon in our car right now. It says, buy one, get one free, Krispy Kreme doesn't donut. That's two for the price of one. Those are good deals. Amen? If you don't like Krispy Kreme donuts, at least somewhat, the altars are open. Today is not a two-for-one because I feel like I already preached a little bit to us. Today is a three-for-one special. I just felt impressed this morning in prayer to, before I get into the word word today, I just wanted to share some instruction or encouragement with you today. I want to evangelize you. What does it mean to be an evangelist? An evangelist... Ministry is the ministry of encouragement. The Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we are introduced to this word, Amen. Unlike our senator, I probably shouldn't even go there, but here we go. (laughs) Unlike our senator, Reverend, Emmanuel Cleaver, who prayed in the Senate, a man and a woman, the Bible is a man. And it's a man for a reason and for a purpose, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, if you get out your fancy dictionary and you begin to look at the lexicon and you begin to look at the the Greek definitions, and you begin to look at the Hebrew definitions, you will find that these words have similar origins, or similar, not origins, but similar um, base meanings, and then they're built up off of that base understanding. So let's break this down for a minute. Amen. Simply to say amen in the Old Testament or the Hebrew would would be to say let it be. Let it be. It's an invitation. Let it happen. In the New Testament, when you say amen, it means so be it. It's kind of a command. Let it be done. But both of them come from root words, and in both of the instances, those root words parallel each other in that they are built in faith. They are speaking into things that don't yet exist, saying that you want it to happen. This is powerful. This is powerful. You read through the word of God and you find many different times that a man is in it. And you you read just before that word and you see there's a promise. Or you see there's instruction. You see there's a blessing. And the response to the writer was amen. The response to the, the writer was let it be in my life or so be it in my life. Let it happen. And so, I would encourage you maybe to adopt the practice. Let amen become a part of your ready response 
to the word of God. Because an amen says what that man's preaching or what's being preached over the pulpit, I want that in my life. It's not just a vain word. It's not just to take up space. It's not just to, to, to hype people up. It's not a hype word. It's a word with purpose and meaning and definition. Amen is me saying, yes, Lord, whatever your word is speaking to me today, I want it in my life. Does anybody want God's word in their life today? It's a perfect opportunity, isn't it? Amen. Lord, let your word do what only it can do in our hearts and lives today. There are many times in life we just go through life and and life can be hard and life can be difficult and life can just be at steady pace. Even as those who live for Christ, we get into our our habits, we get into our rituals, our, our expectation of every day, you know, this is prayer time, this is study time, this is work time, this is family time, and we get in our routine, and every now and then we need God to show up. Because just living right isn't all it takes. We need a relationship with Jesus Christ. So on that introduction today, I want to preach to us the idea from several examples in Scripture Divine intervention. Divine intervention. By nature, we do not desire things of the Spirit. By nature, we desire things of carnality, which is the biblical word, or our flesh. The Spirit would desire that we commit, consecrate, and sacrifice. Our flesh would desire that we fulfill, please, and affirm. But God calls us to a spiritual place in our lives where we allow Him to work and move and minister to us. We live in a world today that's very spiritually sensitive. We live in a world today where people are spiritual, maybe not Christian, maybe not of any religious affiliation, but they seek out spirituality. That's because we are spiritual beings. And as a spiritual being, we have an innate craving inside of us. More than just a desire, an innate craving inside of us to be reconnected to our Creator. The very one who made us spiritual. At first we were formed carnal, flesh, mud ball, shaped by His hand, and stood up, flesh. But we were made spiritual in the moment that God said he breathed the breath of life into us and we became a living soul. We became spiritual in the moment that God breathed inside of us. And by the fall of man, there is a separation between us and God and there is inside of us this never dying, this never wavering, this always aching desire to be reconnected back to God. Man, I'm so thankful for the infilling of the Holy Ghost. 
It is the fulfillment of that promise. By being filled with His Spirit, we are then reconnected back to Christ. That is why it is called the new birth experience. Because our spirit is reborn into relationship with God. So by nature, humanity seeks spirituality. David, one of his psalms wrote in Psalms 51 and 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our flesh is carnal, our flesh is sinful, but inside of that sinfulness there is the seed that's been planted in all of us. Who is my creator? Who is my source? And how do I connect with him? Can I tell you, it is not through our flesh we connect with God. We must surrender our flesh. We must surrender our own will to his will. Sometimes we, we speak in very general terms when preaching. And so maybe today I'll just slow down a little bit and maybe it'll be less preaching. And today may be a little bit of, well, as my father-in-law said, thorough. We'll just drop the plow a couple levels. We're not just going to turn the soil over today. We're going to dig a little bit deeper. Surrender my will to God's will. What does that even mean? Well, let's make it practical. My will this morning was to roll over and close my eyes and go back to sleep. That was my will. My will was, I don't want to hit the snooze button. I want to turn the stupid alarm off and forget about it. But inside of me, there was a spiritual drive that said, but I want to be in his presence. But I want to connect with like-minded people in worship. As a minister, there's a calling upon me that says, hey, there's, there's a word that's burning inside of your soul that, that you need to deliver to somebody. You can't just roll over. You can't just tuck your head under the pillow and, and turn off the lights and close the door. There's something inside of me that's aching and craving. So I can't find God through my humanity. My will says, well, let's just not. And his will says, well, let's just do it. I seen some head nods earlier, so you'll 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 be with me when I say putting that first foot on the floor this morning was an act of sacrifice. Getting the second one over there finalized the sacrifice. All right, I'm up. We're we're after it. Let's go. It was surrendering my will to his will. And maybe that's a simple illustration. But what happens when I'm going through life and, and things of my past begin to creep up and, and my will is, uh, can I just be playing today? My will is, man, I just need one more drag off that cigarette this morning. I just, I just, I just need that habit to come back. And, and God's will says, no, 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 no. Remember, you laid that on the altar. Remember, you, you laid that on the altar, or maybe life's been heavy, and, and your will says, man, I just need one more sip. I just need one more drink, man. I, I just. 
The human will says, I need you to need that. And, and God's spirit, his will says, no, 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 no. Remember, that took you down a path you didn't want to go down. Remember, that can lead to a place that, that you, didn't, you didn't enjoy being. Or, or maybe it's just one more shot. Or maybe it's just one more pill. Or maybe it's just one more click on the next screen. Maybe it's just another 10-second video. Maybe it's just something else that craves inside your flesh your will, but you have to surrender it to God's will. Because I can't find God through my will. I can only find God by following His will. My carnality does not seek God, but the Spirit inside of me craves to be reconnected to Him and seeks to know Him. Romans 7, or excuse me, Romans 8 and 7 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I'm going to rain on somebody's parade. I know it. I'm sorry. Don't ever expect your flesh to love God. I'm going to help somebody. You never get to the point where your flesh loves sacrificing for God. There's a word used in this verse of scripture. It's very similar to another word, but they have different meanings. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. If you and I got in a fight, I'd win. I have the microphone, I can say that. But when it was over, we'd probably be enemies. I don't want to be anybody's enemy here today. It's not the intent, but I'm making an illustration. When there's people at odds with one another, they're enemies. Not just individuals, but nations become enemies against each other. But all it takes is the right environment with the, the right situation put in place, and people can come together and they can lay aside their differences and they can write a peace treaty or shake hands and make up or become friends again. And maybe you remember some of the people you grew up with you fought the hardest and maybe you're best friends with them today. That's because enemies can be converted to friends. But the Bible says the carnal mind, not enemy, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Enmity means there is no reconciliation. Ever. Never. Not going to happen. Your, carnal, your carnality can want it, but God says your carnality doesn't measure up enough for me to make recompense with it. Our flesh can never be subject to the law of God. Because the law of God is too holy for our carnality. Well, you're preaching a hopeless message, preacher. No, 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 you stay with me. I got somewhere I'm going. This is why some people struggle living for God. Because they're waiting for their flesh to get holy. Got bad news. 
your flesh will never become holy. Some of you are doubting, okay? So Jesus Christ robed himself in flesh. If his flesh was holy, then why did it have to die? His flesh had to die because his flesh was not holy. He lived perfect. He was without sin. Why did he have to die? Because he took on all of our sin and his flesh in and of itself was not pure enough by itself to redeem us. Flesh has to die and the only flesh worthy to die was flesh without sin and that was Jesus Christ. So the only way flesh could redeem us is when a perfect God was manifested in flesh and could die to save us. Our carnality, our humanity is never going to be good enough to save us. And even the living flesh of Christ couldn't redeem us. It had to die because blood had to be shed. So if the flesh of a perfect man named Jesus Christ could not be made holy, then who am I to think that my flesh could be made holy? Well, then how in the world are we supposed to live for God? Well, we need a divine intervention. Romans 7, verses 18 and 19 says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. This is not Dr. Seuss. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. What he is saying is I would desire to live after the will of the Spirit. That's what I, I truly want. That's what the depths of my soul cries out and yearns and longs for is to live after the will of the Spirit. But there's this barrier between my, my longing soul and God and it's the carnality in my life and I'm trying with everything within me to get beyond that. When I would do, when I would will to do good, evil is always present. Our flesh cannot please God. So we must have a divine intervention. When a divine intervention comes, something is birthed inside of us. Something is conceived inside of us. Something bears itself out in our lives. Let's go back to our example of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Mary, young girl, chosen by God. The angel said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest, capital H, God, that's referring to, shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. It took a holy overshadowing of Mary 
for Christ to be conceived. And could I tell you today, it will take a divine overshadowing in our lives to produce a spiritual birth inside of us. Calling comes when His Spirit moves on us. Anointing comes when His Spirit moves on us. Salvation comes by the moving of His Spirit. Direction in our life comes by the moving of the Spirit of God upon us. His Spirit leads us and guides us. It becomes the ultimate decision maker in our life. This is how we are led by the Spirit and live following after the Spirit because we allow the Holy Ghost which dwells inside of us to lead us in all of our decision making. So what does that mean about our flesh? That means we ignore it. It takes a bit of self-discipline because you can't have two voices screaming at you at the same time because it creates confusion. And God's not the author of confusion. And so if we are leaning our attention and we are leaning our ear towards our fleshliness, God's just going to be quiet. Well, I haven't heard God speak to me in a long time. Are you being carnal? I haven't heard the voice of God in my life in a long time. Are you seeking to follow after the Spirit, His will? Are you seeking to follow after your will? Have you allowed there to be a divine intervention into your life? Have you allowed a holy overshadowing to come upon you? We can't be in relationship with the world and expect also have a holy overshadowing in our life. In high school, we called them two-timers. They had a weekday girlfriend and then a weekend girlfriend. The girlfriend who was their girlfriend at school and then the girlfriend who was their girlfriend when they were away from school. God don't play that game. He's either God in our lives or in our lives, he's nothing at all. One minister said he's either Lord of our lives or he's not Lord of our lives. Because for us to call him Lord means we've surrendered everything to him. All the time in full surrender to him. James chapter 1 verses 13 through 15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. I have to pause. If God can't be tempted by evil, he's not going to expect you to be tempted of himself. God does not subordinate himself to evil to allow it to attempt to tempt him. He does not allow it to become greater than him to, to tempt him. So the principle is something greater than us does not have the power to tempt us. God, who is greater than us, says, I will not tempt you. Grab a hold of what I'm getting ready to tell you. 
When temptation comes, it is not from a higher source. It is from a lower source. When Satan comes to tempt you, it's not because he's gained a foothold in your life. It's not because he's gained power or influence in your life. It's because he's trying to gain power and influence in your life. He realizes he's subordinated to you. He's below you. He's less than you. He's not as good as you. He's failed in the areas that you've had success. And he's trying to bring you down to his level so he can step over you. So the next time he tries to tempt you, just look at him and say, why would I surrender to somebody who's less than I am? That was part four. Verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Where does temptation come? Of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. This is the path of those who live after the will of the flesh. Because the will of the flesh is lust. What are the works of the flesh? The lust of the eye the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are the three vices of our flesh that try to grab a hold of us and pull us down and bring us under submission to the evil one. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life have no ability inside of them to promote us into the spiritual. They have no ability to mature us in our relationship with God. This is why when lust is conceived, the only resulting birth that can come from lust is sin. But when a holy overshadowing comes upon us, vision, anointing, burden, calling is birthed. And the only thing that can come out of that is a furtherance of the kingdom of God. And when sin is finished... Sin has but one result, death. We must be sensitive to those who have been caught up in the web of sin and the addictions and the, and the strongholds that get upon them that drag them in life down to a place of actual physical death my heart aches when I see those situations my soul breaks when I see those situations to hear those stories bothers me but there's another death that we must be careful of there is an eternal separation from God which in the Bible is called death And when sin is finished with us, it may not leave us in a mortuary. But if we follow the path of sin all the way to the end, it will leave us in a place of eternal death. It will leave us in a place not designed for us, but a place that was designed for the devil. And all of those who chose to live a life of disobedience to the will of God. 
I tell you today, there is a way to avoid eternal death. There is a way to avoid Satan's punishment being enacted upon you. Romans tells us for the wages of sin is death. The only payment sin ever brings is separation from God. But if you'll be overshadowed by His Spirit, if you'll let a divine intervention come into your life, you won't be separated from God. You will be reunited with God. So when the self-discipline kicks in, And the Holy Ghost begins to stir in your spirit. uh, And the word of God kicks in in your life. And it says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's abstain from that. Let's not do that. This is not God withholding from you. But this is God steering you and directing you and guiding you and leading you to eternal life. We need an overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. Every single one of us needs an overshadowing of His Spirit and His power to birth inside of us something new, something alive. We need divine intervention. If you go to Genesis, the 28th chapter, We're going to read a few verses, 28, 10 through 13. Here's Jacob. He's running for his life. He, uh, in essence, stole the birthright. Tricked, lied, connived, swindled his father out of the eldest brother's blessing. And he in his daintiness, for he was the fair one, had angered his older brother, who was rough, gruff, and ready to fight. Probably the one in the family not to anger is the one who's the skilled hunter. And I don't know what the conversation was between Esau and Jacob. It probably wasn't face to face, but word got traveling through the family. Esau's got the expensive arrowheads out. Esau took the practice bullets out of the cartridge. He's got the he's got the home invasion bullets in there, Jacob. I see him down there with his dagger. He he's got that thing sharp and it is shining. You know, most of the time he walks around with just the little dagger on his side, but today he's, he's fully covered. He's got the arrows, the bow, the sword, the dagger. He's got all of it. He's just, he looks like he's ready to go to war, Jacob. What do you know about that, Jacob? I'm out. That's what Jacob's response is. I'm out of here. He's after me. He's, he's coming to find me. He's coming to make recompense because I've not only stole the birthright from him, but I've stole the spiritual blessing from him. And not only have I done that, but I've connived our father whom he loves. So he's coming to make vengeance for himself and probably vengeance for my works against our father. And so Jacob is on the run. And he gets to this place. And he lays down to take a nap or a, for the evening to sleep. 
And he gathers some stones for a pillow. I could name a hotel chain, but I won't. And as he's laying there, he begins to dream a dream. Jacob went out of Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he lighted up on a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was setting. He took the stones of that place and put them for his pillows and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascended and descended upon it. Verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. (laughs) You want to talk about a divine intervention. You want to talk about God showing up when you would least expect God to show up. Jacob is running in the midst of all of his debauchery and all of his conniving and all of his his swindling. He's running for his life. He's living the life of a con. He's just trying to make it another day without getting caught. He's just trying to survive. And in the midst of his trying to survive and, and carrying the weight of all that he has done on his shoulders, God shows up in his life. And God doesn't just show up to Jacob to say, hey, I'm God and I'm coming after you too. God shows up with a different intention. God shows up and says, hey, you know the promise that I made your grandfather? The promise I made to your father? Jacob, I'm going to make the same promise to you right here, right now. Can I tell you today? You don't have to get right for God to show up in your life. A divine intervention is not determined by how right you're living or how holy you're living. All it takes is just a moment in His presence. Just a moment to lay down and to calm yourself and to not become so encumbered with this world. Just a moment of silence in your life and God will break through. God will show up. And when He comes, it's not because He's coming to get you. It's because He's coming To share with you his promise. God has a promise for your life. Some of you believe it. God has a promise for your life. God has a purpose for your life. And when your moment of divine intervention comes, it will change you. Jacob woke up from that place. His first words, I must have stumbled into the very gate of heaven, the very front door to heaven. How did I find this? It was a complete accident. I stumbled into the gate of heaven. He built an altar out of the stones, and he made a covenant with God. Lord, if you'll be with me and you'll protect me, you will be my God. I want to tell you today, when divine intervention happens in your life, it changes your motives. It changes your perspective. Jacob was no longer on the run trying to save his life, but now he was trying to find a way to prove his covenant to God. 
there's something that happens when you come through a, a service. You enter into the presence of God and you begin to feel His Spirit maybe in a way you've never encountered God before. And He begins to divinely intervene in your life. You walk away with different motives. You walk away with a different covenant in your soul and in your spirit. Lord, I'll do whatever I have to to get back to this place. I'll do whatever I have to. Lord, if you'll protect me on Monday through Saturday, I make a commitment in my heart to I'll come back to this place on Sunday. I'll enter back into your presence again. And let me tell you something. God's never failed to keep his hand on us. God's never failed to protect us and provide for us. God's never fell short on his end of the covenant. He's always provided our needs. He's always protected us from danger. He's always encouraged us. He's always had the door open. Covenants are made when we have moments of divine intervention. Jacob had another moment of divine intervention. In Genesis chapter 32. There's a whole lot that happened in Jacob's life between his dream of the ladder with angels in Genesis chapter 32. The swindler got swindled more than once. But God blessed him and God provided for him and God gave him increase. And Jacob come to the point where he said, all right, I got to get out of this place. This guy's ripping me off. Laban, his family member. And he says, all right, it's time to go back home. And so he gathers all of his things and he begins his journey back home. And on his journey, he gets word from some messengers. I don't think you're going to make it all the way home, Jacob. Oh? Do you remember why you left home? Well, yeah, my brother was after me. He's trying to get me. And you remember what your brother is. He's, he's, a, skilled, he's a skilled hunter. But just so you know, he's not left the trail. <laughs> he's still hunting. He's still listening. His ear is still to the ground. He's found every small evidence of your tracks. And words already gotten back to him that you've left Laban's house and you've begun your journey back towards home. And just so you know, he's not waiting for you to get there. He's already gathered his people, his family, his servants, his army, and he's coming towards you already. So Jacob devises a plan. And he begins to make Individual processions, I guess is the best way to say it, of gifts. And he sends one procession on. And after they get a, so far down the journey, he puts another procession together and sends it. And gets a, another procession together and sends it. So if you're Esau, you, you get gifts on day one. And then you get more gifts on day three. You get, and it's just a never-ending procession of peace offerings. And after everybody's been sent on, Jacob is left at the end by himself. Let's go to Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. 
And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince thou hast power with God and with man and hast prevailed. Can I just put that in 2023 terms? Jacob wrestled an angel and won. He didn't pin him down for the three count. He didn't knock him out for the ten count. But he wrestled with so much intensity and so much fervor and so much desire and zeal and passion and want and longing and craving for this blessing that the angel said, all right, I tap out. You got it. You got it. I got to get out of here. <laughs> what a divine intervention. When you're all alone and the only thoughts strolling through your mind are, I'm going to have to face my past. I'm going to have to face some things I've never reconciled with. There's some stuff coming after me that's trying to regain a grip on my life. There's some past addiction that's creeping its fingers back into my life. There's some past stories that I've not... I've not heard or listened to in a long time. And their remembrance is coming back into my soul. My carnality is creeping back up into me. It's like a vine that's creeping up the wall of my life. How do I stop it? How do I get past it? And in this moment of despair and stress and agony and anxiety, an angel shows up. A divine intervention happens. And Jacob recognizes it. And not just watching angels ascend and descend, but he grabs a hold this time. He says, you're not leaving until I get my blessing. I wonder what would happen the next time a divine intervention happens in your life. If you become so determined in your soul and your spirit that you would grab a hold of the angel. You would grab a hold of the experience. You would grab a hold of the move of God. And you would say, I'm not leaving until I receive my blessing. I'm not leaving until I get my healing. I'm not leaving until I've been filled with his spirit. I'm not leaving until I get direction from God. I'm I'm convinced. I'm determined. I'm in a place that can change my life. I'm going to hold on until something happens. We need a divine intervention in our lives. Jacob showed up alone, broken, busted. He had sent all of his goods before him. He didn't know the result that was coming. But worst case scenario, he was going to meet his brother face to face with nothing else left to give him. Because his brother had either consumed it or killed it. But God said, no. You were a swindler. You were a backstabber. You were a con. But I'm going to change you today. I'm going to convert you today. 
I change you from being what you were in your past to now that you're going to become the father of many nations. And so he becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He becomes the father of the Israel nation. God's plans are so much bigger than we could ever expect or imagine. I have to hurry on. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He held the flock in the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. He said, here am I. Skip to verse 10 real quick. Now come therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You want to talk about a divine intervention in the life of Moses. Moses should have never existed. Moses should have been annihilated with all the other male babies of the Israelites. If his parents would have obeyed the wicked Pharaoh, he would have been thrown into the Nile River and consumed just like every other child of the Israels, of Israelites. But his mother hid him, and through divine intervention and divine preservation, he was taken to live in Pharaoh's house, raised among Pharaoh's customs, this answers the question, well, how in the world did Moses just go walk up to Pharaoh? Because Pharaoh knew Moses. Pharaoh was Moses' adopted father. Pharaoh could, or excuse me, Moses could just boldly walk up to Pharaoh. But this didn't happen while he lived in, in, in Pharaoh's house. Moses went through some stuff. Moses lost his temper and killed a man. Then he ran and hid. Forty years he lived on the outside of town. Forty years he led sheep through a desert trying to find something for them to eat. What a job. Lord, you had all this provision in my life. You provided for me to live. Is this the best? Is this what the, this is what the end result of, of letting me grow up in Pharaoh's house and preserving me? Is this the end result of all of that divine intervention in my life, God, so that I would end up out here in a place where nobody is trying to find little pieces of grass for sheep to eat in amongst the sand? Not to mention it's hot. Forty years he wonders. Forty years he questions. Forty years he struggles. Forty years he thinks about his past. Forty years he dreams of promises. 
one day he's walking by the bush. What's going on over here? And the, book, and the bush begins to speak to him and he realizes this is a divine intervention and God begins to pour out to him a promise and a blessing. It was through divine intervention that Moses received the direction for the next 40 years of his life. You are going to become the deliverer. You are going to become the one who stands before Pharaoh and represents my people. You're the one that's going to lead them out of bondage. And lead them all the way to the shores of deliverance. You're the one that's going to lead them to the promised land. You're the one that's going to speak my word to them. You're the one that's going to provide water to them through obedience to my word. You're the one that's going to provide for them manna and quail. You're the one that's going to judge them. You're the one, Moses, that's going to take my holy law. And present it to them. A divine intervention. In Luke chapter 24, I must move quickly. Two followers of the man Jesus Christ, the great teacher Jesus Christ, are leaving Jerusalem after Passover. They're walking along the road on their way back to their home outside of Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. The old two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three scores furlings. Verse 15 or 14. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. They got a story going. Man, there's some stuff happened at Passover this time. You know, most of the time we just get together and we have the feast and we, we read the scriptures and, and the priest does the prayers and they, they offer the sacrifices and, and it's pretty routine. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry actually and just kind of go through the, through the motions. But, you know, it was, it was quite different this past weekend. They actually killed that guy. They put him on a cross. I don't think I've ever seen the city come together in such an angry mob in my life. They're just rehearsing everything that they've seen going on. And while they communed together in reason, Jesus drew near to them and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. So they're walking along and, and a third one joins the party. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Oh, I was there. It was, yeah, I agree with you guys. We've never seen anything like that before. Verse 16. And he said to them, what manner of communication are these that ye have one with another as ye walk and are sad? Verse 18. Verse 30, yeah. And it came to pass as he said at meet with them. Jesus says, hey, I'm just going to come ahead and go to your house. They invite him in. They don't have a clue who he is. He's just a, a sojourner. He goes in and begins to eat dinner with him. He took bread and blessed it and broke it. And divine intervention happened. And he gave it to them. The Bible doesn't tell us who these two disciples were. 
It could have been one of the twelve. It could have been another of the multitude that gathered in and, and began to follow them. But something clicked inside of their mind the moment Christ took a hold of the bread and he broke it. Something registered inside of them as a divine intervention. Hey, didn't he take bread and break it at the Last Supper? Didn't he say, this is my body which is broken for you? Didn't he say my flesh would be broken for you? Are you him? Are you Jesus? Yes, he is Christ. He is the Christ come to them. He was this moment of divine revelation where Jesus was more than a, a teacher. Jesus was more than a prophet. Jesus was more than some religious man. Jesus was more than a miracle worker. But Jesus in that moment became Messiah to these two disciples. He became a risen Savior. He became the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I want to tell you today, if Jesus is just a character in a book to you, if Jesus is just a story from Sunday school, if Jesus is just some religious symbol to you, let me tell you today, through divine intervention, if you'll get in his presence, he'll become more than just a storybook character. He'll become true to you. He'll become a friend that's sick and closer than a brother. He'll become your hope, your promise. He'll become your savior. He'll become your Lord. He'll become your king. He'll be your God. Acts chapter 9. You can't have divine revelation through academic study. Your divine intervention will not come from the pages of academia. I'm not against education. Don't misunderstand me. We all do well to educate ourselves. But we cannot hope that our education or our study will lead us to eternal life. Let's read. And Saul, well, let's stop reading. Who is Saul? His name's changed to Paul. But who was Saul before he became Paul? He was a murderer. Before he became a murderer, who was Saul? He was a student. Pharisee of the Pharisees, he called himself. He was a student of the greatest teacher of that time, Gamaliel. He didn't just go to a private college. He didn't just go to an Ivy League college. He had one-on-one -on -one teaching with the best, the greatest, the highest regarded, the most rated, probably the most expensive teacher of all the Jewish laws and Jewish rules. He said he knew the covenant forwards and backwards. You couldn't trick Saul. You could ask him a question about the Hebrew law and he knew the answer. You could try to twist the question and, and word it in a way to, to trip him up, but he knew it too well. He couldn't be conned. He couldn't be deceived. He knew the academia of God's law forwards and backwards, top to bottom, inside and out. He was the studious of all the studious. He knew it from beginning to end. And it was this academia that caused him 
to take on his purpose and his mission. Because according to the rules, these people following Jesus are heretics. And we must rid them. And we must get rid of them. And we must annihilate them. Because they're following a false Christ that couldn't be Messiah. All right, here we go. And Saul, this guy, Saul. Yet breathing out threatenings and slaughters against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he find any in this way, whether they were man or woman, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly he had a divine intervention. And there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul's not dumb. Saul's educated. Saul realizes he's in the middle of a moment. He realizes there's something happening. He may have never heard the voice of God before, but in his moment, all of his study, all of his scripture memorization, all of his, his academic putting together of reason and logic and, and all of these things come together in this moment. And his response is, Who art thou, Lord? Because he realized that there was something bigger than him in this moment. There was something more powerful than him in this moment. There was something that had more authority in his life in this moment than the high priest that said, yes, go gather them and bind them up. There was something more powerful happening in his moment than when they stoned, stoned uh, I just forgot his name, Stephen. They stoned Stephen and he stood by and held his coat. <coughs> There's something happening in Paul's or Saul's life in this moment. And he realizes it. And he says, who are you, Lord? I am. I wonder if Paul's jaw dropped at that next word. I am Jesus. Whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the goads. What a, what a moment of divine intervention. Everything that he was fighting against stood in front of him in all of its glory and all of its power. So strong was the presence and the power of God that Saul could not look upon him. It caused blindness to come upon him. And in the presence of the glory of God, shining as though it were a bright light, God reveals himself to him. You want to talk about divine intervention. It takes more than just the academic study of God's word to get a revelation of who Jesus is. It takes us having a real moment with him where he begins to speak to us and he begins to talk to us and he begins to mold us and begins to shape us where we'll set aside all of that I've learned and I'll still sit at the feet of the master and let him continue to teach us. 
guess what I'm saying to us today is, I need a divine intervention. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.